I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Consent Convo on The Spin. We continue to talk with our brothers on consent. The Consent Convo is a public conversation campaign on consent. It is an emotional justice project. And throughout November, it is in partnership with Essence. I'm talking with black men about how they learned about consent, from whom, how that learning shaped their relationship to their body, sex, power, men, and women. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. In the last of our global conversations with black men, I'm joined by Diallo Shabazz. Diallo Shabazz is a global education advisor and sustainability expert who has worked with government agencies and NGOs in North America, Asia, and Africa. Right now, he's executive director of 100 Black Men, an organization in New York committed to transforming economic and social policy and launching independent programs and organizations that serve low-income communities. Before that, Diallo served as Senior Director of Sustainability Education at the New York City Department of Education to support the nation's largest school system on structuring public-private partnerships to improve career and technical education. Diallo has consulted early-stage education technology startups on business development during the Angel and Series A rounds, formerly worked for the environmental organization Solar One on green workforce development, and also previously worked for the NAACP, where he specialized in youth development and civil rights. Welcome, welcome, Diallo. Ah, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Consent. We're asking men to speak out, to stand up. Speaking out and standing up, that is something that you do with your work and you've been doing in so many different forums. You were raised in an Afrocentric environment and right now you work with 100 Black men of New York and your focus is education. Previously, you worked on issues with the environment. So let's talk masculinity, Afrocentricity and education and the kind of consent positive environment the Consent Convo is working to create. What kinds of masculinity notions were you raised seeing? How did they shape what you learned about consent? We've explored masculinities throughout this series. Hyper, toxic, but of course not all masculinity is hurtful or harmful or deadly for that matter. So the Consent Convo is pushing for creating a consent positive environment. And yet, creating that means finding power in permission. So... What does consent mean to you? How did you learn about it coming up? What did your 19-year-old self know and learn? Who taught you? What did they teach you? And how did their teaching shape your relationship to yourself, to sex, to your body, to power, to women, to men? What were the notions of masculinity that surrounded you? And how did they impact your understanding of consent? What have you had to unlearn to create healthier, loving relationships? And looking back, what would you tell your 15 or 14-year-old self? Diallo Shabazz, let's talk consent. Okay, so let's start with your personal journey and how you came to understand what consent even is. Thank you for having this conversation. This is a very important discussion that we often do not have, not only in our community, but 
generally in our society. My earliest memories around consent actually stem back to a conversation I had with my father, who just turned 80 years old this year. He still remains a very powerful man in my mind. And when I was about seven to eight years old, my father told me a story about how when he was a kid, my grandmother, who had 13 children, she was seeing a man who used to beat her. He used to attack her in the house in front of the children. And my father said that as a young man, he felt powerless you know, in his ability to defend his mother. But one day, he and some of his brothers and sisters were old enough. When the man attacked my grandmother, they grabbed him and threw him down a flight of stairs. And he looked up at them at the top of the stairs, and they said, don't you ever put your hands on our mother again. And my father told this story over and over to me as a child, as a teenager, and he would tell it with such power and such conviction, I almost felt like he was talking to me as if I threw my grandmother down the stairs. But it was the first time that I remember learning about consent, and it, it, it was a story that was drilled into me that influenced the way I thought about it years later, that you do not physically attack a woman and that if someone attacks her, it is the responsibility of the people around her to defend her. And so this hands-off, permission-based model was drilled into my mind as, as, at a very young age. And I remember being a teenager, you know, and as a teenager, you're just starting to date, so you're getting to get to know women and, you know, begin to kind of start to experiment with sexuality. It was very hard for me because I was always waiting for the consent conversation with her to take place. I would tell my friends, they would say, well, what happened? You know, we know that you hung out with her this past weekend. I said, well, nothing happened because she didn't tell me it was okay. You know, they said, well, did she give you a look? Did she make a move? I said, no, 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 no. My, my father always told me that I had to wait. I was one of the last of my friends, actually, to be really be an experimenting with sexuality because I was always waiting for a particular kind of conversation that was very unfamiliar for me to take place. And it was those earliest notions of consent and hearing that story from my father that informed the way that I was thinking about it. That is so powerful because you're making me think that, okay, so because a certain type of consent had been modeled, you were literally waiting for permission, which of course assumed that the girls had been modeled in an equal type of consent so that they knew they would have to articulate what it is they wanted before you would engage in anything. And what's been interesting about this entire series is all the different ways people have spoken about how they came to understand consent, much of it through culture or, or TV or body language, but so little through active, reinforced, either positive behavior or storytelling, which is what you had. So then one of the other things that has really happened in our culture is so much of the no means no campaign framed how people saw consent. You've had a different experience. So then when you started to say yes to be engaged. We've focused so much on what it's meant to say no. I've really been interested in asking men and women, what has informed your yes? When you have decided to engage, to become sexual, what kinds of things informed your yes? As a father now who has a daughter, it's always been informed by uh, social connection and emotional intimacy and trust. But of course, sometimes, especially you know, as a teenager, you're really just driven by hormones. So there have been a number of things that have informed my yes over the years. I think that ultimately what I've tried to do is make sure that this was someone that I feel some type of emotional, intellectual, and spiritual connection to. And one of the most challenging things for me was understanding the balance between the yes and the no. Part of this kind of stems out of the way that I was also trained around masculinity as a young man. I come out of an environment where... 
many of the men in my family were quote-unquote warriors. You know, I come from a military family. My grandfather was in the Army. My father was in the Army. My brother was in the Navy. I have a lot of uncles who were in the Marines. And growing up around a lot of military folk means that you have kind of this like hyper-exaggerated model of masculinity. My family also for generations has been involved in what I'll call the struggle movement or the civil rights movement. You know, my great-grandparents were Garveyites that followed Marcus Garvey. My grandfather was a Mason in Bessemer, Alabama, in the Deep South. The story that we tell about him was that one day when the Ku Klux Klan rode by his house and shot at his house, he went to the front door with a rifle and shot back. These stories about men being men and fighting for equality is kind of written into like this, like, this strong model of masculinity. At the same time, when I was a teenager, I went through an African Rites of Passage program, which was connected to the Ifa religion. We had a number of African priests and griots, these storytellers, that would teach us lessons through stories and through activities on what it meant to be a man. For some of these lessons, they were only taught by women, so the men would leave the room, and a group of women would come into a room of boys, and we would sit there and listen to the women talk to us about the same exact thing that the men just talked to us about. They would talk to us about sexuality. They would talk to us about responsibility, about spiritual growth. And in the religion of Ifa, you know, my mother's Christian. You know, she loves Jesus. She's Baptist. I grew up going to King Solomon Baptist Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm from. And also, on a different day, would go to Ifa Temple with my father. I was in a two-religion household, you know, and in Ifa, Spirituality always has a male and female dynamic. It's a duality of masculinity and femininity. So there's a balance. There's nothing that's absolutely masculine or absolutely feminine. And so when I was learning about this yes or no conversation in terms of consent, it was never absolute for me. It was never always all yes or all no. It was, it was a balance. And that was very challenging to me to kind of figure out. I understood it theoretically. I didn't understand her, the woman wanting to say yes, but not necessarily giving me an indication that she'd done so. I didn't understand my own apprehension sometimes, where I feel like as a man, masculinity might compel me to consent to some type of emotional or sexual interaction just because I'm a man and society says that's what we're supposed to do. But inside, I'm like, no, I really don't want to do this, but I feel compelled to do this. And so there's this internal struggle. And then as I got older, and this is also not something that we talk about, but this is something that... A lot of young men ask about, this happens in, in, with high school mentees, this happens with college students, is you begin to kind of learn about how within the realm of consent and trust, there's an area where whether it's a preference or a fetishization or some type of emotional damage that's occurred, some people will consent while saying no. So they'll say, I want to pretend as if I'm saying no, but actually I'm consenting to say yes. That is this weird dynamic that gets people into trouble where men will say, well, even though she's saying no, she really means yes because she wants to be dominated. And there's a level of responsibility and transparency that needs to be there in order to work through that because misunderstandings around consent, around the yes or no, is really what I think gets people into trouble. When we spoke with Frenchie Davis, who's an extraordinary sister and a sexologist, she talked about the fact that sex education that is so focused on the anatomical and the realities of physicality had failed to really understand that it was much less about sexuality and much more about emotionality. And so that ideas of masculinity and dominance, the emotionality of that then informed how men dealt with issues of consent. And often the way in our, in our kind of contemporary times we talked about consent has been in reaction to these huge headlines of celebrities being accused of sexual assault. And I think about what you said, and I think about a man like Derek Rose, the athlete, 
who recently was in a civil suit accused of gang rape by a young woman that he had formerly dated for a period of 20 months. And over that 20 months, he had consistently asked her to engage in group sex. And she had consistently said no. So they broke up because she would not engage in group sex. And so the night in which he claims she consented, she's saying, you know, the one thing you asked me to do, I said no to consistently. And then all of a sudden we break up and now I decide I'm going to say no. It doesn't make sense on anybody's level. But what became clear in his deposition is that he said, I don't understand what consent is. I don't understand what it is. So then I wonder for you as somebody who is the ED of an organization like 100 Black Men, what kind of learning would benefit young men around that gray area? Because the gray area really is the difference between sexual assault and permission. And if people err on the side of, well, she really wanted it because she wanted to be dominated, that's part of what patriarchy teaches. And it's part of what I call the kind of quiet teaching of masculinity, because women definitely want an alpha dude, but they definitely don't want to be raped. And so what kind of teaching do we need to better engage young men and frankly, sometimes older men in having that conversation that is not kind of shaming or silencing or humiliating? I think it really goes to the roots of sexual predation in our society and sexism and really to oppression in general, you know, where people believe that it is the responsibility of the oppressed to speak out instead of having the predator themselves take on responsibility for not putting them in that position. You know, I think that one of the things we as men need to do is not guess, is not feed into notions that there is a gray area. If you are not absolutely sure, then you should not do it. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I went to college, binge drinking was a huge issue. And then, of course, when people drink, also you have limited inhibitions. And so one of the trainings that was started on campus was around making sure that you do not engage in any kind of sexual encounter when you've been drinking because, one, you may not be sure that it's actually something that you want to do. And if the other person has been drinking, they are unable to give you consent. And so we need to be very careful about making sure that those things don't happen. The other thing that we should do, and this kind of goes back to the whole masculinity, femininity piece, is if we're moving beyond absolutes and talking about this gray area, the reason it's a gray area is because it's more than just physical. You know, there's an emotional piece, there's a social piece, there's a cultural piece, there's a spiritual piece. And, if we begin to think this way, that in order for me to be sexually intimate with a person, it requires more than physical attraction. There should be some kind of emotional connections, some kind of intellectual connection. This, of course, means that sometimes many people would end up having less sex. But what it does do is it makes us more responsible for the way that we interact with individuals. And it's, it's interesting that you said older men as well, because in my thinking, I'm thinking that older men, you would like them to be wiser. But that's not always the case. In a consent situation, people should think about whether or not there have been multiple levels of consent that are given. And that is what compels you to move forward. And not just that you check this box off, that you think that because you are physically compelled that you have permission to move forward. Absolutely. And one of the things the consent convo is pushing is the idea of what we call continuous consent. It's a yes to every stage of whatever that engagement is. And at whatever point the yes becomes gray, then it automatically becomes a no. And then that is a different way of thinking about the notion of consent, that it's not one yes, but it's a continuous engagement all the way through. And the point at which somebody can no longer say yes or hasn't said yes, you simply as a person who is seeking to engage sexually, you take that as a no. So it reframes no means no into being 
emotionally engaged about what yes looks like and how yes is articulated and how you hear it, how you hear it culturally, how you hear it emotionally, how you hear it sexually, how you hear it physically, and all of those things are real. So last question is looking back, given your journey, you're a dad now and you have a daughter, what would you tell your 15 or 14 year old self about consent, particularly around that gray area that you talk about when it comes to masculinity? And given what you were told by your father, what kind of learning would you like your daughter to have? I definitely feel like she's going to refer back to this at some point in time. (laughs) (laughs) So the stakes are high. When I was 13 or 14 years old, at that stage, and thinking about consent, I was thinking about consent as some kind of milestone. It was something that I had to try out for the first time. And the physicality of consent is what really was on my mind. And I think it's very important at that age, instead of thinking about passing this milestone where you want to consent to coupling with another person is really kind of learning to understand yourself. You know I mean? There are people who give consent to a lot of other people who really don't understand their own psychology and their own sexuality. And so giving up the idea that it is a milestone I need to move beyond, learn about what you're really interested in, in terms of life, you know, like what kind of emotional person you are, what kind of intellectual person you are. That should be the focus and not this physical milestone. A few years later, when I was 16 or 17, as I'd begun to explore sexuality, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're having sex, but even, you know, kissing someone can be something that's sexual. It's important to learn about safety, responsibility. You know, there are so many young people in our community that aren't responsible for consent around making sure they protect their bodies. They don't set a standard for other people. You know, it's one thing that said that people will always respect you a little less than you respect yourself. And so it's important for a 16 or 17-year-old, people who are younger as well, to begin to learn high standards around consent. This is not something that I, something I easily consent to. And I like your conversation around perpetual consent, that it's something that you have to continue to say yes to over time. And then as I got older, you know, I mean, you learn about how consent can become very complicated, you know, when I was 19 or 20. And at that point, you want to kind of understand ideas around truth and around how there's an, an emotional component to consent. There's a spiritual component to consent. And there's a, there's a very political component as well. I mean, you want to take responsibility not for just your own personal consent, but the consent of other people around you. If you are in a community of people, if you have friends, whether they're male or female, that have ideas around consent that could be detrimental to the people that you or they know, then you should take it upon yourself to check them. In a loving way, of course, because people like to listen in ways where they don't feel that they're being made wrong, but take a political stance on consent to make it a safer and healthier world for the people around you. This is Diallo Shabazz. You are listening to The Consent Convo. Consent is swag, consent is smart, and smart is sexy. It sure is. Thank you, Diallo Shabazz. Thank you, Diallo. Thank you. Have for having me. Good talking. I'll talk to you soon. The Consent Convo is an emotional justice project. It's a public conversation campaign on consent. And in November, it is in partnership with Essence. We are having it with men and women. It's a call to create a consent positive environment to speak out, to stand up. Stand up,
Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes and check out Essence every Thursday for The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. I'm your host, Esther Armour. We about to drop, yeah. I got moxie. I'm so damn foxy. Industry try to block me like cops and paparazzi. Those that don't copy just copy me properly. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.